welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back to the show. First time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. Always happy to have you. I've been plugging Counterpunch Plus for several months now, and it's probably nauseating if you're if you're binge listening to this podcast, but it is a very, very important thing that I relay to all of you because we have retired our print magazine, and now we have this glorious subscription section on the website. Please do go to Counterpunch, get a subscription. You'll have access to all of the exclusive content that you won't find anywhere else. Lots of great features, all of the old stuff from Jeff Sinclair and Alexander Coburn and many, many others of, uh, of past ages and present day, and uh, including uh, my guest today, who I'm very happy to speak with here in just a moment, who is a regular with Counterpunch. Go to the website, Counterpunch subscription counterpunch plus is the way to do it listen we need independent media now more than ever as the uh, media landscape becomes ever more corporatized ever more monopolized and ever more polluting of our minds so let's do uh think about getting that subscription all right if you want to follow my work go to patreon patreon.com forward slash eric Dreitzer. if you want to hear me bloviate about geopolitical issues and international affairs and my thoughts on all things around the world okay let me turn to my guest today very very happy to talk with him this is somebody whose work i followed for a long time i actually went back into my email and realized i interviewed him almost a decade ago it's been almost 10 years since i had dave lindorf on a podcast with me dave is an author he's a journalist he is a columnist with counterpunch you can find his work in counterpunch regularly he is also a founding member of this can't be happening an online newspaper collective he is the author of a number of books and including maybe most appropriate for our conversation today, Killing Time, an investigation into the death row case of Mumia Abu-Jamal. And uh, also recently should note and should congratulate Dave as a 2019 Izzy Award recipient. Of course, his excellence in journalism is unmatched. Dave Lindorf, welcome to Counterpunch. Thanks for having me on, Eric. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for bearing with me through all of this technical horseshit that we've dealt with for the last 10 minutes. And um, I want to talk to you. Well, I want to talk to you about a number of things, Dave, to be perfectly honest. But I want to talk to you about Mumia. Uh, you quite literally wrote the book or certainly one of the books on Mumia Abu-Jamal. Again, I'll plug it. Killing Time, an investigation into the death row case of Mumia Abu-Jamal. This is required reading, especially for any young folks listening. Please do get a copy of that book and read it because it is the best uh, account of all of the ins and outs of the Mumia case. But uh, who is Mumia, Dave? Who is he? Why does he matter? Help us to understand. Well, right now, he's a 67-year-old prison journalist uh, serving a life sentence without uh, possibility of parole um, for the conviction uh, of uh, on charge of murdering a white police officer in Philadelphia back in 19, late 1981. Uh, a, a corrupt trial, which I wrote about, uh, demonstrated how corrupt it was uh, in many, many, many ways. I mean, it's unbelievable how many ways it was corrupted. And then the corrupted appeals system. Uh, he's a, uh, you know, he's so loathed by the uh, by the law enforcement establishment in Philadelphia in particular that it's impossible for him to have a fair appeal so uh, and we can talk a little in the, about some of the details of that 
Um, but he originally started out as a very promising journalist in Philadelphia. He was the president of the Black Journalists Association. Uh, he was known everywhere because his voice was on NPR and several black radio stations. Um, uh, his very distinct voice, uh, it's, a, it's a very mellifluous uh, baritone. And, uh, you know, everybody knew his voice. And, uh, and his reporting was phenomenal uh, on, you know, issues of, uh, of major concern in Los Angeles, in uh, you know, Philadelphia, and also uh, covering some of the, of the very important events that happened during the, the time he was working, like the, you know, the bombing of, of a house in Philadelphia by the Philadelphia police uh, of a, a move house in which uh, I think five children and, and uh, six other people were killed because the police were shooting at them. So they couldn't leave the house and, it, and they were preventing the fire department from putting out the fire. So yeah, he wrote about that. He wrote about the move movement in general. Um, and uh, you know, in the end, this uh, terrible, case happened and he was railroaded into prison and given a life sentence, well, given a death sentence. And he served on uh, death row uh, in solitary confinement for more than two decades before a federal court threw out the conviction as unconstitutionally assigned to him. What made Mumia sort of this cause celeb that, that, that he became? I mean, you know, he's a journalist, of course, a prominent journalist in a major American city associated with black liberation struggles and so forth. But uh, that in and of itself maybe doesn't fully explain the, the, the full scope of the issue. No, it's interesting. He, you know, he was a Black Panther member um, and uh, probably one of the youngest ones. He was like 15 when he joined the Panthers and became their uh, information. Um, I don't know what his title was, you know, their information minister for the uh, Philadelphia branch of the Panthers. And uh, he, um, so that was one thing. And then, you know, when he was tried, uh, that was used to try to get a conviction. You know, they highlighted his uh, being a panther, which, of course, he hadn't been a panther for this was it. the trial was in 82. The Panthers were defunct in early 70s because of the uh, machinations of COINTELPRO and fell apart. So you're talking about it, a guy who was a teenager as a Panther, he never rejected the Panthers, you know, he, he, he believed in them, but to hold that as the grounds, as the prosecutor did to prove that he hated cops, um, that, and therefore he killed the cop, you know, that was kind of the argument he used to the jury is a, a very white jury and, uh, and a very sick way to try to win a conviction. Um, but it worked. And, um, you know, the, the, at that point, that was kind of his claim to fame was that he'd been railroaded in court uh, by, you know, a, uh, you know, a, a pretty, a, a very corrupt judge. He had a, uh, a post-conviction hearing, Relief Act hearing in 1995, which got a lot of attention globally. And, um, and then 
the real the real thing that led to his becoming famous was after that, which was that he became a noted uh, journalist from the depths of the incarceration system in the United States. He he wrote books. He had uh, live from death row a uh, a regular report on the radio which led to a huge conflict because it was on uh, one of the public stations in Philadelphia and it was shut down by, by pressure from the fraternal order of police on the station, which was owned by Temple university, you know, and they, they chickened out and they dropped the, sh the program. Uh, and, and all of these things actually contributed to Mumia's uh, notoriety and fame around the world as a political prisoner, which, he clearly is. So there's really a couple of different stories here. I think one is a story about corruption and the city of Philadelphia and maybe Philadelphia as something of an avatar for many big cities in the United States. And then on the other hand, there's this uh, there's this other question about Mumia that I think is particularly interesting that Mumia is essentially something of a chronicler of what we now would call the sort of period of mass incarceration. Yeah, that's right. Um, there's a there's uh, there's a woman named Noel Hanrahan who uh, has for years been taking tapes from Mumia. He, she was taking them from death row when he'd only get like I, I forget what a short time he was allowed to talk on the phone uh, to her to read. He would write these little commentaries on things of importance or or about you know prison conditions. And she would tape them, and then uh, she would get them out. And she did, you know, yeoman work on getting his voice out of the prison, and uh, you know, to the world. Um, and uh, she's still doing that. It's prison radio. You can you can Google it. And the thing too about Mumia is that in many ways, uh, for for people who came of age in the 1990s and the early 2000s, Mumia uh, and the movement to free Mumia is for many people, especially those who come from like white liberal backgrounds, is really an entry point into radical politics. That's true. That's true. And and uh, it it's it's risen and fallen. Uh, you know that support. Uh, it's, it hasn't been constant, but when the, when the, uh, you know, push comes to shove, uh, he gets enormous support globally. Uh, this came, the last time I saw this happen was when he was, um, he was diagnosed with um, hepatitis C and he couldn't get the medication needed to, um, to get rid of it. It's a, it's epidemic around the uh, entire U.S. in all the prisons, you know, state prisons, federal prisons, everywhere. It's a, it's just a horrible like, epidemic within our prisons. And and hepatitis C um, was got got a lot of news during this period that Mumia was fighting to get treatment because uh, there is a cure for it. Uh, the medication can cost you know uh, as much as a hundred thousand dollars per person. For treatment, but it's 95% successful, and the other methods of treating hepatitis C were uh, basically palliatives. I mean, they just didn't work. And so, if you only gave the old uh, medicines that were dirt cheap and didn't work, um, 
which is what they're doing all over the country still, um, you're you're basically killing, consigning your prisoners to death because um, hepatitis C causes uh, the destruction of your liver. You end up with cirrhosis, and then ultimately, uh, you know, your liver is destroyed, and then you get liver cancer too, which is almost always fatal. And uh, so here was Mumia, known to have cirrhosis. He had he was uh, getting all kinds of horrible symptoms from it. Um, he was in pain. Uh, his skin was looking like uh, people described his his skin as looking like uh, you know a uh, lizard skin, and it was very painful. And um, a, a global effort, uh, basically, to to get him treated. Uh, ended up uh, supporting him through a, f- a federal trial, um, which a magistrate, a federal magistrate ruled that he should be treated. And the prison system fought that tooth and nail all the way through the uh, appellate court. And uh, at that point, when the, he was ordered to get treatment, they dropped it because it would have, it would have probably gone national if it had gone any further. Uh, and had precedential power for all prisoners. So he got his treatment. Um, I think maybe with, I haven't checked, I think in Pennsylvania, it may have been precedential for all Philadelphia uh, or Pennsylvania prisoners, but it was a huge victory. And, uh, you know, it did cure his cirrhosis, but not before it had, uh, actually when he, the trial was happening, didn't have cirrhosis yet but they delayed the treatment so long that he did in fact get cirrhosis. So he has uh, a cirrhotic liver. Um, But, um, you know, you saw the world come together on that. Um, There were, there were petitions coming from entire parliaments in Europe to the court. Uh, It it was quite powerful. So, um, yeah, I mean, he's, he's, the abuse of Mumia uh, in the legal system and in the prisons has been uh, uh, like the main reason that he has gained such a global fame and that people know about his books, which are real, all really great about life in prison and stuff. So, you know, in a sense, Mumia, of course, Mumia is a, a human being, an individual, a person, et cetera. He's, but he's, an, ama- he's an amazing individual. Of I mean, course. Look at the time he spent in solitary confinement, and you you know look at some of the people who've been confined much shorter times. Uh, I am thinking of Julian Assange, who's being tortured now um, with with uh, solitary confinement, and even the confinement he had to undergo in the Ecuadorian uh, little apartment uh, in London the Ecuadorian embassy and I I went over to see it and try to get in to see him. And it was, it's just a tiny apartment, you know, like, like, like a sort of a upper middle-class family might have it. And and that was where he was being, you know, he had to stay there because he'd be arrested if he left the building. Um, You look at how these people have endured uh, solitary confinement, you know, and, and, um, then you look at Nemumia, who has never bent, never de- despair. I'm sure he's had his own moments of despair, but he's never let it get the best of him. 
you know, he just works, he, he writes, he, he makes powerful statements on issues of, you know, current concern. And he's right there. And uh, I, I just can't, I can't imagine being in that situation and having the spirit and uh, fortitude that he has shown all through these years. We're talking 40 years. Yeah, I, absolutely. And what I was going to get at was that um, while he is, of course, an individual, uh, he's also in many ways a symbol. He is uh, a symbol of a lot of different things, as you've already noted. But in to your point, he is kind of uh, emblematic of the kind of slow state-sponsored execution that we see every single day in the United States in our prison system through medical neglect, mistreatment, and so forth. And so yep. yet again, Mumia through, you know, through suffering, I don't mean to make him sound Christ-like or anything, but through his suffering is demonstrating yet again, uh, one of the critical sort of social conditions of the prison system. Yeah. I mean, the, the important thing about Mumia is he never lets people forget that he's fighting for all prisoners. He's not doing this just for himself. Uh, he's always, when he does these, these challenges to his unjust, uh, sentence and fights it uh, and doesn't let up, he's, he's saying that everyone in prison is being abused and every prisoner is, you know, not getting justice. We have, a, we have this crazy prison system where we over-sentence people for, uh, you know, incredible amounts of time for no purpose other than vindictiveness. And where do we stand as far as his health related to COVID? Yeah, well, that's the next one. He got COVID. Like uh, th that. That's also, of course, epidemic. I mean, you couldn't have a better uh, environment for the spread of COVID than a prison. <laughs> Everybody's crowded together and uh, eats together. And, you know, the, the sanitation is horrible. Um, so the, the prison guards get it. Everyone gets it. And Mumia finally did succumb to getting it, and um, he had uh, he had gotten quite sick, couldn't breathe, and they weren't sending him to the hospital. So there was a big campaign to get him in the hospital, and he finally did get taken to the hospital. And when they did tests on him, they found that he also had congestive heart failure. So part of the reason he wasn't breathing was that his heart wasn't working right. And uh, he also has diabetes. So he had a lot of the conditions that uh, are causing fatalities from COVID. So it was touch and go, I think. And uh, he did get um, bypass surgery. So his arteries were clogged, uh, coronary arteries. So um, the, the last I heard, he had been moved out of the hospital uh, to uh, the prison infirmary which is not a great place. <laughs> and, um, but he's out of the hospital and you don't want to be in a hospital during a COVID epidemic. So he's, he's in the uh, infirmary, but, you know, prison healthcare um, is handled for the most part by contract for profit firms, uh, mostly from a corporation called the Correction um Corporation of America. It's modeled on the Hospital Corporation of America, and they've basically bought up a lot of um, of uh, 
closed motels around the country and converted them into minimum security prisons. Uh, and it, it, you know, it's just turned our, our entire prison system into a profit making machine. So, um, but, but in terms of the healthcare, there are these com- private companies that handle the healthcare. So uh, they get paid a, a contracted amount and the less care they give, the more profits they make. It's a beautiful system we have here. Yeah, isn't it great? I mean, it's just every possible way they can make it horrible, they do. Dave, where do we stand on the uh, efforts to mount a new legal challenge to overturn Mumia's conviction? There was a lot of momentum, a lot of talk about that uh, months ago. Um, Of course, there was a lot of rejoicing from progressives when Philadelphia uh, elected uh, Larry Krasner to be the district attorney. And it seems that Krasner has, at least to some degree, gotten involved in this, but certainly not in the way that maybe many of us would have hoped. So tell us a little bit about where we stand now with regard to uh, trying to get him back in uh, a hearing. Yeah, Krasner's been something of a disappointment because he he uh, has uh, he's freed to you know to his credit he has freed a lot of people who were falsely convicted. He has a, uh, a retired judge in charge of a conviction review unit um, in his office that looks at questionable convictions and have found, you know, grounds for uh, overturning a lot of them, which the, the prosecutor has the power to do. They're, they have a, the power to say, you know, that they have evidence that the prosecution shouldn't have been brought or that there was uh, prosecutorial uh, misconduct in the trial. And, uh, you know, then it usually has to, I think it has to go to a judge for a ruling, but they basically usually go with the DA's recommendation on a on a case like that. And if and if they then say, well, you know, we need to, we're overturning it, but there needs to be a new trial. Uh, the prosecutor is in a position to say, well, we're not going to prosecute it. We don't think that there's a case. Uh, or or even they could say, uh, well. It's too old a case to prosecute. We can't. The witness, half the witnesses are dead, and you know it, can, it really can't be successfully prosecuted again. So we're dropping it. Uh, they have a lot of options, and and he's used most of them. So to get people out of jail who were wrongly put there, and uh, yet he has not done that with this particular case, which um you know if we have time i will i will go over some of the examples of how absolutely atrocious it is that he was convicted at at this trial and and the the reason it's coming up is that uh larry krasner went into uh he needed a a, a bigger desk i think or a better desk and so they went into a storeroom that had uh nobody'd been in to in years. It was all covered with dust, apparently. And Larry went in there with a, an, an assistant and they were looking for a desk and somebody noticed a, a bunch of boxes under a desk, you know, like uh, bank boxes that said Mumia on them. So they said, what's this? And they pulled them out and there were six boxes full of documents from the um, dating back all the way to the trial in 1982. 
with you know all kinds of documents and when they and and he assigned to and again to to Larry Krasner's credit he assigned uh, uh, an assistant to go through all the documents to see whether there were documents that shouldn't have been withheld from the or that might have been withheld improperly from the uh, defense and they found them they the most the most extraordinary one was they found a letter from the most important prosecution witness in this case, a, ta a white taxi driver, young guy uh, named uh, Robert Schobert. Uh, the, the letter was from Robert Schobert. And, and, and most people, including me, think that it's pretty clear that Schobert lied on the stand about what he actually saw. And I, I can give you examples of why that's true. But um, but uh, he was allowed to lie and say that he saw Mumia standing over Faulkner, shooting down at him, you know, over a, a lying down Faulkner execution style and firing four times right down at Faulkner. The letter from Chobert said, where's to the prosecutor, uh, where's my money? <laughs> and that letter was with never um, made um, to never presented to the court during the trial or after the trial, it was over. It was probably, I think the letter was probably after the trial, but uh, you know, that, that in itself should, should warrant a, a full hearing in court, you know, with Schobert coming in and the prosecutor coming in and explaining it. So Dave, I mean, if, if Krasner and, and, and his people found these documents, what is their explanation for not pursuing this further? Well, they gave the, they gave the documents to the court. There's a, um, the only black judge to have ever considered Mumia's case uh, was uh, considering an appeal uh, by Mumia and his defense team uh, of the, his prior for um, conviction review uh, appeals because each one went up to the state Supreme Court uh, and each one of them was fought bitterly uh, up through the courts by, um, by local state courts, superior court, and then the Supreme Court. But, the, but it was fought by, uh, before those courts by the Philadelphia prosecutor who had the job of trying to challenge the defense effort to get a new, uh, a, a new hearing on his case and new evidence, right? So the problem was that the prosecutor in charge of all those appeals going on up to the Supreme Court was a district attorney named uh, Castile, who, Ron Castile, who became a Supreme Court judge at the time that the that these appeals got up to the Supreme Court. Now, logically, he should have recused himself, right? I mean, from all discussion, because he had been trying to prevent those things from getting to the Supreme Court. He did not, even though he was asked to, to recuse himself, he said, I can be a fair judge, and he refused to recuse himself. So, um, there was a case at, that went up, above into the federal courts that ruled that that failure of Castile's to recuse himself similarly in, in another prisoner's case 
um, was grounds for that prisoner to get a new trial. And so Mumia's attorneys went in and said, okay, well, this is the same situation. And, and it is the same situation. So that's where it is right now. Uh, and Williams, the, the judge, uh, I think his name is Wilson, the judge who made that ruling that it applied to Mumia too, stated very clearly that, it, that even if uh, the Supreme Court Justice Castile was not uh, biased, that the uh, appearance of impropriety in that particular instance was grounds for um, the trial to be overturned. So, you know, he thought it was like totally outrageous. Well, um, so that case was going on when Krasner found these six boxes of stuff. So um, Wilson, Judge Wilson said, I, I want to see those, <laughs> right? And, um, and Krasner um, did turn them over. And so now they're in the hands of Judge Wilson. And there's all kinds of fighting going on by uh, both uh, the widow of, uh, of Faulkner, who is desperately trying to make sure that Mumia rots and dies in prison. Um, and she's backed financially by the Fraternal Order of Police. And then you've got, you know, the DA's office, which is also uh, fighting against this going forward. So Krasner has handed it off to uh, you know, one of his assistants who is diligently trying to prevent Mumia from getting his appeal. And so people are saying, what's going on here, you know? Um, I mean, I think what's going on here is that there's a, uh, that Krasner's up for re-election this year and that he's going to have a tough fight getting re-elected. So he's first, he's got a primary against a, uh, a uh, Hispanic uh, former DA that was one of the ones he fired for being in bed with the cops uh, and a guy named Vega. And, and so, you know, first there's going to be a primary in June uh, I think it's June, um, between Vega and Krasner. And if Krasner doesn't get the nomination, um, you know, normally this is such a democratic city, whoever is on the ballot in a off-year election for DA wins because there's no Republicans then be elected DA. And it would be very hard to be on the ballot as an independent. Uh, I suspect Krasner would probably fight and try to win that, and maybe he would. There was a huge movement that elected him DA, uh, mostly, mostly black people, and uh, you know, backed by white liberals, and it was an upset, landslide win. So, if that movement is still alive and well, and you know, feels that Krasner has delivered on his promises, which he mostly has. Um, you know, he'll probably win the primary. And if he wins the primary, I'm sure the FOP will try to back a Republican candidate to beat him. But I, I think that'll be a harder battle for them. And maybe Krasner will start having some spine and, and on this issue, on the Mumia issue at that point, you know, that, uh, or if he's reelected, uh, he might do something, but that won't be till November. 
So I just don't know what's happening with this case. I mean, maybe it'll get stalled until November and then Krasner won't be uh, afraid to do the right thing. But he hasn't done the right thing yet. Let's take a quick break. On the other side of the break, I want to talk a little bit more about Mumia and how Mumia relates to the current social movements, Black Lives Matter and so forth. And uh, I want to wrap up our conversation this evening by talking a little bit about Biden, Trump and the continuity of imperialism. So uh, okay. stick with us on the other side of the break and we will continue. Sounds like fun. Oh, it always is here at Counterpunch Radio. We'll be right back. Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Dave Lindorf. Again, the book. We've been talking about Mumia's case, Mumia Abu-Jamal, the book, Killing Time, an investigation into the death row case of Mumia Abu-Jamal. That was 2002. I can't believe it's been that long uh, since that book was, but I'm sure it probably feels even more surreal for you, Dave. Um, it does. <laughs> but I want to return to the question of Mumia and Mumia's relationship or, or, or how he relates to our current moment and the current social movements, Black Lives Matter and so forth. Um, because in one sense, uh, Black Lives Matter has taken on something far beyond just a political connotation. It is, in, in fact, now become a social and a cultural brand. And it's it's so many different things. But Mumia is unabashedly radical. Mumia has always uh, put forward a radical perspective and radical critiques. And so I'm, I'm wondering, how do you view Mumia in relation to the current social movements and the relevance that he might have? 
Well, he always he always speaks about the you know the capitalist system, the uh, you know the need for radical change in America. He he has a, a big focus on the incarceration uh, complex because it you know it it is the new slavery in the United States. We've got uh, more prisoners by by population and in absolute numbers than any other country in the world, including China, which is quite astonishing. And that's a country I know really well, having reported on it for five years from China and Hong Kong. Um, I mean, this, is, this country is, is uh, a, a, an outlier in the uh, just way, in the horrible way that it treats uh, the, the uh, people it incarcerates who are overwhelmingly people of color. And, and this is something that, you know, when we address this as a, as a foundational issue for what's wrong with, with America. There's something else that we should probably touch on here regarding not just Mumia, but political prisoners in the United States and specifically black and, uh, uh, you know, people of color who are political prisoners, because in many ways, you know, those of us on the left in the United States, it feels very lonely often being a lefty here in the U.S., which is such a deeply reactionary country and in many ways one of the reactionary forces globally, of course. And uh, so in some senses, we look to people like Mumia and Russell Maroon Schultz and Sundiata Akoli and all of the other radicals of that period who are actually still in prison. And we look at them in many ways as leaders, as leaders in terms of the uh, discourse, as leaders in terms of their own you know, personalities and experience and, and, and what they represent. So I'd like for you, if you could, to talk a little bit about the black political prisoners of that period who we can still point to today as some of our great leaders. Yeah, well, there's a, there's a number of Panthers who are still in jail. And, uh, and also, don't forget, there's, there's the AIM, is Leonard Peltier, and, uh, and I think other AIM people uh, who are still jailed. Uh, a, we do have political prisoners. We have, uh, and we also have, um, you know, what happened to Chelsea Manning and um, uh, what, the, what the hell is his name? The guy, the... Uh, a white guy who uh, uh, is the uh, internet guy, Brown or something. Barrett Brown. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a huge, people don't realize it. And we do, a, you know, our, our, well, you talked at the beginning about how horrible our media is, uh, are, um, and one of the things they're horrible at is they simply don't tell us, uh, the public, how horrible this country is. And one of the ways it's horrible uh, is that it does have political prisoners. People do go to jail for political reasons. Um, I, I'm actually on the terrorist watch list. Um, <laughs> I discovered that two years ago while I was traveling to Europe twice. Um, so, and you sort of say, what the hell is this? And, and I, I laughed at it at first, but when, it came up in a trial uh, against the watch list brought by CARE, you know, the, um, what is it called? The Coalition American Islamic Arab Relations. Islamic Relations, yeah. Uh, Council of Arab Islamic Relations. Um, they brought a case in uh, Virginia 
uh, and the judge in that case in district court ruled that it, their watch list was unconstitutional and that it was uh, unconstitutional in terms of how you got on it and unconstitutional in the way that you can't get off it or even find out who put you on it, or even if you really are on it. I know I'm on it because I was told that by the British uh, security officers who were checking my bag and uh, my person for explosives, uh, but not my wife's. <laughs> you know? so, so, I mean, it was ludicrous, but what I learned from that trial in Discovery, they, the uh, FBI admitted that the, there are over a million people on that list None of them are being vetted uh, after they get recommended to the FBI by some one or other federal uh, agency. So you get on the list and then um, that list is made available on the computer of any police officer that has a computer in their car. So if they run a make on you for a traffic stop and they happen to, you know, pop up uh terrorist watch list, that stop could turn into something really, really different from what it started out as. And that's America. You know, we don't hear that. I, I tried to get I tried to get a story on that in uh, the Inquirer, you know, I'm, a, I'm on the terrorist watch list kind of thing. You would think that would be a really important piece of news, right? But they just rejected the, the op-ed article. They run op-ed articles for me, but they didn't run that one, and neither did the Times. Um, so you don't, you don't really get the reporting on the fact that we're a police state. You don't get good reporting on uh, the day-to-day the -day abuses of police. You know, when you get a, ch a, a Chauvin uh, kind of murder on, t on a uh, cell phone, so graphic it does become news but it th this is happening all the time and we don't we don't get that well to that point i think it i think it bears uh examining a little bit uh how the united states really fits in to the our understanding globally and what i mean by that is what we have just undergone in this transition from the orange fascist to uh i don't know the senile buffoon i don't know what we call biden um but the point is we have had this transition it is in some ways uh, a very unique moment in our recent history and although i could probably take it in a number of different directions i just want to ask you at a very general level how do you characterize this moment that we're living through now and the early days of this Biden administration after four years of Trump and so forth, how would you characterize this moment? Um, well, I think, I mean, realistically, most uh, of liberal America is uh, taking a big sigh of relief. Um, and, and in a way that's kind of dangerous because um, a lot has not changed. You know, I mean, we're, we're still, shooting at uh, boats in the, you know, warning shots at Iranian boats in the Persian Gulf as though that we're, the, you know, they're, they're trespassing in our vicinity when actually the U.S. Navy is trespassing badly in uh, a number of countries' backyards in the Persian Gulf. And we're, uh, we're the aggressors all through the Middle East. We're the aggressors in uh, Latin America, 
uh, where we bully to get our way from, you know, one country after another, uh, Bolivia, Peru, Ecuador, Colombia, Venezuela, you know, you just go down the list. Uh, and and um, so, so imperialism is still with us. Um, U.S. warmongering is still with us. Biden hasn't even stopped, the, you know, he even wants to stop the Afghan war on the memorial of 9-11, right? I mean, for God's sakes, if you're going to leave, leave. If you're not going to leave, you know, I mean, do, you're going to leave on a, um, on a date that's going to have some, you know, significant memorial purpose that's well, there's something th there's there's something uh, uh deeply insidious too about doing it on 9-11 implying as if the people of afghanistan had something to do with 9-11 i know they keep talking about the our enemy the taliban the, uh, the taliban have never done anything to america except in their own country they've defended themselves you know I don't, i'm not a fan of the taliban but that's not the point the point is that Afghanistan was was basically they they didn't even have the power to oust Al Qaeda. You know they allowed them in uh, because they had been fighting against they, they, they had been helping them fight the Russians. So you know the Taliban let them in and there they were. And then they they did this thing with uh, the uh, World Trade Center and the Pentagon, and the U.S. went in after them. But um, after that. Um, I mean, I, that was bad enough, but that, after that, there was no justification for the U.S. to go after the Taliban government. They, they weren't, there's never been a terrorist attack by the Taliban outside of Afghanistan. What's the difference between kids in cages and children in migrant detention overflow facilities? Zero. And, and that, that's another problem. I mean, it's, it's just, uh, we... I mean, and we don't hear, nobody's, nobody in the mainstream press goes down and explores why all these people are coming to the United States. It isn't just that they're coming here because they can get a job. You know, it isn't that easy to do. And the jobs are pretty awful. And uh, what the, what's happened is that we have destroyed the, uh, the societies and the economies of El Salvador, of Honduras, of uh, of uh, Nicaragua uh, and uh, and certainly of Guatemala, my God, uh, all the way back into the fifties, and so you know these are these are non functional countries that it's almost impossible to live in. They're they're uh, run by gangs, by um, you know by uh, violence, by militaries, and um, and we are the ones that support that. Honduras in particular, we supported the coup that uh, threw out a, uh, a liberal, liberal reformer elected president. And we cheered that on, just as we cheered the coups in Venezuela that failed. You know, again, first against Hugo Chavez and then uh, against Maduro, we, we, we were supporting a, uh, you know, attempted at a, at a uh, coup there. Um, squeezing the economy. It just goes on and on. The imperialism hasn't stopped anywhere in the world that the United States has been doing it.
not only has it not only has it not stopped biden is expanding upon what trump did which is really the same thing that trump did with regard to obama is the same that obama did for bush is the same and so forth and so on the idea here is that there is a continuity of an imperial presidency and the powers that are established by each successive president simply live on in the next criminal well that's true too i mean in in terms of the power that you're talking about the uh the uh, authorization for use of military force that turned the presidency into a dictatorship uh, at legally as, into a dictatorship has been left in place uh, ever since 9-11 and, or October, I guess it was instituted in October but, uh, of, of 2001. But uh, all of that, all those, uh, there were several of the AUMFs, but the one that is the worst was the first one and they're all in place and they use those to justify uh they they call uh the war on terror a war in which there are no boundaries and it's even occurs in the united states and the courts accept that with the last couple of minutes that we have since i have you here and since you did i i know you spent a significant amount of time in china i want to just ask you a little bit about the rhetoric around china uh these days obviously the kind of uh unhinged warmongering from trump and his ilk uh, sort of goes without saying but can you talk a little bit about the way that washington is uh crafting its policies from the democratic side vis-a-vis -vis china and how dangerous that really is yeah, they they are, um, you know, they they're portraying China as uh, not a, not an economic rival, but as a military rival and a um, a threat to American power around the globe. Which which it is, but it it is from a economic standpoint. I mean, the the, the Chinese we go in with troops into Africa and set up an Africa command. Uh, the Chinese go in with money and loans and, you know, high-speed rail construction and uh, dams. And, you know, they, they buy their way in. Um, the, the Belt and Road Initiative is a brilliant thing to connect uh, all through Asia to Europe. And um, that is viewed as aggression by the United States. <laughs> it's really absurd. The the Chinese are linking Europe uh, brilliantly because it, it frees them up from the problem of having ships go around and be interfered with by the United States Navy. That, so they're going to connect everything with all these rails running from Vladivostok through uh, uh, or, or through uh, uh, Tajikistan, through Turkey and into Southern Europe and, and up into Northern Europe and into Germany. And, it's going to change the world for them to do that, but um, it's a, and it's a brilliant stroke. They have the money to do it, and they're doing it. But it's not aggression. Uh, it's something that the United States doesn't know how to defeat because we're a declining economic power, and China's a rising economic power. Why is it so difficult for leftists to talk about Uyghurs and Xinjiang? Um, well, you know, leftists are a little confused about China. China is not a communist country. And that, I keep telling my friends that, that are, are you know, still living in the 70s and, and, you know, dreaming of communes and stuff. China is not, they don't have work units anymore where, where you're, you know, your whole life was in your, on your job and you got your housing and your health care and everything on your job site. Those are all gone. And, and it's a free market, basically. 
um, sink or swim. Um, there's still all the corruption inherent in a uh, top-down dictatorship, which is what you have in China. So I, I, defend, I define it as a kind of a um, usually friendly fascism in China because the, the rhetoric is communist, but the, the um, functionally you have a military uh, state capitalist and uh, independent capitalist fusion with the party, uh, which is sort of a definition of, of, feudal, of uh, fascism when you have all those things together. Unions are illegal unless they're, unless they're the official unions that don't really function as unions. Um, there's, there's no real election contests. They sometimes have contests at the village level, but those are mostly for show. And, um, and it's gotten, things have gotten a lot tighter under Xi Jinping than they were before. Uh, he's sort of, uh, you know, sort of a neo-Maoist and he's, he's very carefully posturing himself as the great leader, you know? Um, and, and what, what's unique about China is that the, the party, the party sees its, its essential need as improving the lives uh, on average of the Chinese people. If Chinese people think things are going to get better, they'll endure the uh, rule of the Communist Party in the country. And if things don't get better, then they're in trouble. So they've managed uh, over time to keep just, you know, even through downtimes, they managed to keep the downtimes not too down and uh, to just, you know, things are much, when I talk to my Chinese friends, they say life is a lot better. You know, but but don't be a uh, you know anti-government critic because the 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 weight comes down really fast and heavy. It seems like uh, certain corners of the left have really you know tried to quote unquote debunk all of the stories from the Western press and the CIA mouthpieces and the Washington Post and all of the corporate outlets that tell you that uh, China is running you know gulags beyond anything seen in the Holocaust or whatever they might be saying. And yet at the same time, it does seem that those same segments of the left are ignoring an obvious reality. And so I, I guess the question really is, how come we can't get any nuanced understanding? of the issue on the left where in theory leftists are supposed to be the you know at their strongest in providing analysis yeah it, well the analysis fails when you start talking about about countries that uh, are at least you know define themselves in their nomenclature as being leftist um the the uh i i would argue that as as horrible as the treatment of the uyghurs is uh, and as horrible as the treatment of the people in Tibet are, um, they're not—they're um, not a Nazi Holocaust level of horror, but it's pretty awful. And they—they they do have concentration camps. They do have re-education camps. Um, people are killed um, that resist. Um, and. Uh, you know, I mean, China, China historically has had borders that have grown and receded. And what the modern People's Republic of China did was they basically took all the areas that were at some point 
controlled by a Chinese dynasty and said, this is China, right? I mean, sometimes some dynasty would have uh, far-flung control in place like, uh, like uh, you know, uh, Uzbekistan. And sometimes uh, they were focused on southern China and, they did, and all those northern territories were gone. And sometimes Manchuria was part of China, but that was when the Manchus were actually running China and as overlords of the Chinese people. But then they say, well, well, that was part of China. So, so Manchuria is part of China and, and they've, you know, they, they make it very easy for people who want to, you know, own property and stuff to move to those places. They encourage people, Chinese Han people to go to those places and populate them, Tibet and Uzbekistan and, and Manchuria and Inner Mongolia have lots of Chinese people living in them now because that's the, that's the way that they can uh, justify calling these things, you know, uh, un inalienable parts of China. But the truth is uh, they've, they've extended themselves to the outer reaches of every place they possibly could <laughs> and, you know, and claim the historical right to be there. I think the thing with China, much like Russia, although Russia is obviously different from from a left perspective, is the desire to oppose anything that even has a, a, a whiff of an imperialist sort of agenda towards aggression uh, against Russia, China, uh, Iran, uh, whomever, whether you like or dislike that state, whether you like or dislike their form of government or their economic system, that you feel an obligation to defend them from U.S. warmongering and U.S. imperialism. And yet at the same time, it feels like uh, we have to, we should be able to do that while also acknowledging reality, no? Uh, my position is that it's none of our damn business what happens within China if, from a point of view of, uh, of military action. It's not, it's not, you know, like, I mean, they could just as easily say that we need to free the Native American people and give them their land back. You know, we stole all of it, even though Santorum doesn't think so. Um, that, 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 you know, it's, there's, these are all nuclear countries, right? China's a nuclear country. Russia's a, certainly a nuclear country. And, um, and for us to say, you know, that it's critical that we, uh, that we, you know, stand up for, uh, for the Uzbeks or for the, uh, uh, you know, the Uyghurs or, or that we stand up for, uh, the, um, for the, uh, inner Mongolians or the Tibetans. Well, okay. We can, we can say that they're doing the wrong thing and we can, uh, highlight the crimes that are being committed, but if we say we're not going to deal with them uh, and because of what they're doing there, is is you know basically cutting off our noses to spite our faces, and uh, potentially you know when we do stuff like you know uh, fly bombers over Chinese islands in the South China Sea or or run uh, armed ships with Tomahawk missiles on them through the Chinese claimed waters, we're risking um, a devastating war that nobody's going to win. And that, that's just nonsense. 
Well, Dave, I know that what I want most of all in this world is to watch my two little boys grow up to die in a trench in Beijing somewhere. Yeah, exactly. Except they won't be in a be trench in Beijing. It'll be, it'll be a trench in, uh, you know, uh, the beaches of, of Southeast Asia or something. The United States is never going to get to China. Of course not. I'm, right? I'm, I'm, think... I'm, I'm only saying it for the most absurd humor possible. And um, on that note, let's leave it there. Let's not begin the war with China just yet. Dave really Lee, bad idea. I, and a war with Russia, too. That's a really bad idea. Oh, come on. Let's get a two-for-one. America's so great, we can do it all. Um, yeah, right. Dave, Dave Lindorf, thanks, as always, for chatting with us. Dave is an author, journalist. He's a regular with Counterpunch. Follow his work there. Uh, and, of course, the book we talked about today, Killing Time, an investigation into the death row case of Mumia Abu-Jamal. Do get yourself a copy. Get yourself two copies, one for yourself and one for your kids, because they should be reading about Mumia in the coming years, decades, and centuries to come. Dave Lindorf, thank you for coming on Counterpunch and chatting with us. Thanks a lot, Eric. Let's not make it nine years this time. Let's not. Absolutely. Listeners, let's not make it more than a week until we chat again. We'll speak to you then. Bye-bye.